This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, we're going to talk about the current state of college sports up in the air, to say the least, as fall approaches, and we even look ahead to winter and spring sports. We're going to check in with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. She'll join us in just a bit. But first, guys, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. we got to start with baseball. Opening day, got some games under our belt. Who knows what happens from here, but the tortured process of getting baseball on the field came to some sort of fruition. Mike Lynch, you're a big baseball fan. (laughs) What do you think? Well, it's kind of funny. One of the big uh, uh, issues is let's speed up the game of baseball, and boy, we wanted it to (laughs) It's finally here, so I don't think you're going to hear too many complaints about that. Let's say it's going to be an acquired taste to watch baseball games uh, without any fans, uh, with piped-in crowd noise. Um, I watched a couple of games, and I have mixed feelings about it. It seems a little bit artificial, like trying to get fans to cheer, let's go Knicks, let's go Nets. Um, and it, <laughs> it doesn't even look like a spring training game, because a spring training game, you got at least 10,000 people there. So I think this is going to be an adjustment period for the fans, but I, I think the fans at, have been starving for live sporting events for so long, they'll take whatever they can get in whatever form they get it. Boy, you watching you know, Michael Barr? Yeah, see, when you're a Boston Red Sox fan or a New York <laughs> Yankees fan, is like, I don't know about the crowd size. When you're a Detroit <laughs> Tigers fan, this is normal for us. See, <laughs> we, we're we happy. We Listen, we love our Tigers. We love our Detroit teams, and we're getting ready. Gosh darn it for another season. But listen, I am glad to talk about baseball. I'm glad to talk about my Tigers. And I think everybody, especially you guys know me, is like, I got to now look at the betting odds for the particular game. So the <laughs> the, the revenue for all the, the wet betting websites, they're happy. They're happy to have me. Well, and speaking of revenue, I mean, that obviously was one of the big uh, points of contention between the players and the owners. Who was going to get what? Who was going to get paid what? Ultimately, revenue is going to be dramatically down from the get-go. Fewer games, no fans, and you're going to have teams that are going to lose a lot of money. What we don't know at this point, Mike Lynch, is... And we've talked to the likes of Rachel Luba and others about this. What the mid to long term impact is going to be these guys are going to have to come to the table next year for a collective bargaining agreement and the taste is going to be left over I think of all this acrimony just to get baseball in the field this year it's got to be right 
Absolutely, and I think that was part of the posturing between Tony Clark and Major League Baseball is that that this is how I'm going to be when the collective bargaining agreement expires. I'm not just going to cave. I'm not going to be congenial. I'm going to be like uh, everything that Marvin Miller laid out in the blueprint uh, in terms of uh, the the Players Association is concerned. One guy that did cash in, and I don't think he's really going to care, is Mookie Betts, who uh, just before the season started, 12-year, $365 million extension. I know this is the business of sports. And that number uh, jumps out at me right there. 12 years, $365 million. And, you know, people up here in Boston are out of their minds because it took five years. They couldn't get a deal done with Mookie Betts, and the Dodgers got it done in five months. Yeah, he's a Dodger now and, and very publicly happy about it with uh, some not-so-subtle uh, digs back east, that's for sure. Well, mm-hmm. also back east, uh, east of New York City, we are looking at a brand-new arena for the Islanders. UBS coming in, paying somewhere in the area of $300 million, depending on what the incentives are and who makes the playoffs and who doesn't and all of that good stuff. Uh, naming rights, they're one of the most fun things to track uh, in business, Mike Lynch. Absolutely, and it's tough to keep track of what the name is of what different stadium. To <laughs> say, wait a minute, you know, last time I was there, it was called the uh, the Cap Center. You know, what's, last time I was there, it was called the Verizon Center. Right. And um, but yeah, these these are numbers. Uh, they're big numbers, but uh, this is New York City. It's not the biggest number in the biggest city in the world. Yeah, interesting, Michael Barr. And do you think that that's just because, well, it's the Islanders, it's out on Long Island, it's, it is literally and figuratively kind of far from Madison Square Garden and even from Brooklyn to some extent. Is there sort of a Long Island discount going on here? <laughs> I'm kind of surprised about that because the Islanders have had some success in the league. Uh, and I, but I think you're right. I think there is a Long Island discount. And I was thinking about what Mike Lynch said, trying to keep track of all the names. It's nothing like the old days where you had the old Olympia Stadium for the Detroit Red Wings. You knew that right away. Now there's so many names, uh, guys. It's like you know, for UBS Arena now, and and I can go on and on. It's it's hard to keep track. Yeah, well, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, sort of how this stadium, this arena draws. It's right there in Belmont, close to the famous racetrack, part of the Triple Crown. And uh, as you guys have alluded to, I mean, there is a very dedicated fan base there. Um, We'll see whether all those folks who used to go to Nassau Coliseum and then to Brooklyn now uh, will end up in Belmont. And, you know, as a guy who's covered Wall Street for a long time, interesting to see a big bank and not even a U.S. bank, a Swiss bank, uh, that has its headquarters, its U.S. headquarters in New York City, put its name on this hockey arena. Today we're speaking with Big East Commissioner Val Ackerman. Val, really nice to have you with us. It has been an incredibly busy time, I know, so we're very grateful to you for carving out some time for us. Yeah, thanks, Jason, Michael, and Mike. Great being with you. So, Val, let's start with the business at hand, which is what's going to happen this fall? How did you come to the decision that you did, and where do we stand right now? Well, Jason, I guess I'd start by saying um, it's been a very um, difficult um, and uncertain last couple of months. Um, like, like all conferences, we've been continuously reviewing the, uh, the COVID landscape as we try to figure out the plans around our um, six fall sports um, in the Big East. We, uh, we don't sponsor football anymore, but we do sponsor 
men's and women's soccer, men's and women's cross country, field hockey, and volleyball. And these actually are sports that we've been very successful in. I just sort of note as an aside, um, Georgetown's currently the reigning national champion in men's soccer. Um, UConn, which has just joined our league as an 11th school, has won the national championship in field hockey three of the last six years. Um, we've got great volleyball programs, particularly in Creighton and Marquette. And we've done very well in distance running um, uh, by a number of our schools. So these are sports that we take very seriously. Um, we um, have been, like all conferences, trying to figure out um, whether they can be safely played in the fall. We've been reviewing guidance issued by uh, various authorities, including the NCAA, we're looking closely, as I know you all are tracking, what's happening with the pro leagues. Um, and, and we've been part of many, many discussions, uh, many times weekly, with NCA staff and, in my case, with other commissioners. Um, last but not least, we've had a, a medical task force made up of uh, experts within our conference just to try to figure out um, where we are, what the crystal ball holds, and, again, what can be done. So um, it's been a laborious process that um, last week led to a decision by our president to hold off on the start of our um, sports competitions. Um, typically, student-athletes go back in early August, play non-conference contests, and then they go into the conference play, which leads into the national championship competition. So we made the decision last week to hold off on the beginning. Um, the athletes will come back with the uh, regular student body. We will not play non-conference games. And then we have yet to make a decision about conference play, which would start generally end of September, beginning of October. We just felt like we needed more time. Right. Um, we're in 11 different jurisdictions, including D.C. Um, we've got actually some easing of the virus in the Northeast, where um, half of our schools are competing. Um, but we just wanted to take stock a bit more of the landscape and see where our schools are going to land with their campus reopening plans. So that was our that was our right. decision last week, but we're still monitoring this. And I, you know, to your point, I'm not sure where right. we're going to land in a week or two or three, but it is a uh, shifting landscape for sure. One major problem when a decision like this comes up, especially in an unforeseen COVID-19 era, when sports are, are involved, uh, there are a number of scholarships for people who got to their university. Uh, whether it be for soccer or, or whatever. Are those scholarships in danger now because of what's happening with COVID-19? Uh, that, that kind of determination ha hasn't been made yet, but I suspect m many schools will look to honor those if fall sports are taken away. Um, that, that's what happened in, uh, in the springtime when the NCAA Board of Governors, which is the highest governing body, made the decision to cancel spring sports scholarships were still honored and i think what you would have to see um if that were to happen and that's that's not been determined um likely there would be uh, a move to add an additional season of competition to those athletes to make up for the lost year precedent has already been set for that again based on what happened in march but that's really you know that's certainly one of many issues uh that would have to be tackled depending on uh what happens or not in the coming weeks. Val, those six sports that you mentioned fall into that uh, dangerous category, non-revenue sports, and we've already seen so many schools, including Stanford, drop 11 sports. What is your fear level that these 
some of these sports may be dropped, and when they're dropped, usually they're gone forever. I think that's a re- that's a certainly a possibility around the country. Um, I don't think in the Big East any of these sports are in danger. Um, every school's in a different position, and those are institutional decisions. It's not the conference deciding um, which you know which sport to carry. In fact, UConn, which just joined our league, made the very difficult decision to let four sports go as part of a holistic review of their athletic commitments. Um, their financing, et cetera. Um, I will note in college sports, um, Title IX provides a safety net for women's sports so that any decision a school would make about, um, about pulling a sport would be made through that prism. And so that does provide, um, again, a, you know, a, a level of protection for sports looking through a Title IX lens. But there's, you know, there's just no getting around the fact that athletic programs um, cost money. There really are two sports and college athletics that generate any significant revenue. Those are football and men's basketball. Um, and, and so, you know, there is a level of precariousness about the finances here that, um, that, that's very real and that will be exacerbated by the virus. Um, and that will have to be sort of taken into consideration as our schools work through whatever happens this year and beyond. And Val, when you think about all those different calculus, uh, is there also a concern that maybe, you know, some Division One uh, is in danger at some point because of not being able to field enough sports? Well, sort of, yes. I mean, anything like that is possible um, yeah. in the scheme of things. Um, you know, nothing is nothing is certain um, in life except death and taxes, as we all know. Um, but, you know, at this point, I don't think anybody is sort of thinking those doomsday thoughts yeah. um, as much as they are. What's going to happen this fall, in our case, college sports? Uh, what that means for the basketball season, importantly, which where we have more time to think out uh, models. Um, you know, what they might look like. That season doesn't start for some months. Um, what that means for March Madness, which is the principal revenue stream for the NCAA as an association. And then importantly, for those of us who have to build multi-year uh, budgeting models. I mean, I always present a five-year outlook to my board, you know, what this is going to do going forward. Is that's just good business practices. Right. So I think it's, you know, really too early to say, like, what could happen sort of ultimately with, sort of the future of college sports, but I, 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 yeah, back to my point, I don't think anyone can, um, can go into this without recognizing that there will be repercussions right. going forward about what's going on with what's going on now. Well, Val, at the end of the last segment, you went exactly where we wanted to go, certainly where I want to go as a Georgetown alum, hoop, <laughs> basketball. Uh, what are you thinking about right now? What plans are being made as much as you can to ensure that we will see a Big East basketball season? Well, at this point, um, Jason, our, our plans for our winter and spring sports um, are continuing as planned. Um, basketball season, is, as you would know as a fan, starts um, in middle November. Practices start earlier, continues through March. We've got the Big East tournament, of course, on the books uh, for mid-March at Madison Square Garden. We have uh, other sports we run in the winter and spring. So right now it's, it's full steam ahead. We've got um, two non-conference challenges on the men's side with the Big Ten and the Big 12. We're working on those. 
and then we handle the conference schedule for our 11 teams. So we're working on that. I, I can't say, though, that back of our minds there isn't a need to think out some alternative models. I think it's just a reality going into this. So we're working on, on that as well. I can't tell you today where any of us are going to land, whether the season starts on time, whether there's a truncated season, et cetera. I think we've got to be prepared for anything. Um, but we're, we're hopeful that we can uh, pull it off, um, whether it's with fans or not. I can't tell you whether it's in alternative venues. Sure, that might happen as well. It's probably a little bit too early to say. I guess I would sort of project that it would be, call it early to mid-September, that we would have a better idea probably of where the season will stand. I'll, I'll just say I don't think we've spent enough time as an association, that is NCAA membership writ large, thinking about basketball. The focus right now is so intently on football right. for many conferences that we're not thinking as much about basketball. We need to. I would just say on behalf of our enterprise, we've got to step up and really think about um, what we're going to do with, in many respects, our, you know, our, our most important sport because it's the one that funds the association. This past March Madness, gone. Betting revenue, gone. Revenue for Big East schools, really disrupted. Can you give us an estimate of how much money was just taken away because of the cancellation of this past March Madness? Yeah, my, many millions, many millions. Um, it, it had massive financial implications, uh, particularly for conferences that don't have football revenue streams. Um, you know, we don't we don't have that. Our budget is really built around basketball. Um, I, I would say the good news for our league is that we did have insurance um, that covered the cancellation of the Big East tournament. Um, so we were protected there. We've got a really strong policy that's in effect for the next two years. That coverage is really hard to find, but we had it. Um, and then we have um, we've been carefully nurturing a reserve fund. That was set up when the conference reconfigured in 2013, and with the approval of our board, we were able to access funds from our reserves. That helped mitigate some of the loss, but it was painful um, nonetheless. And so uh, budget models that we've built for this year have been very much impacted. Um, and, you know, certainly as a business matter uh, for us, if basketball is disrupted for us in any serious way this year, that would certainly impact us. Um, but if basketball is can be conducted, you know, relatively disruption-free, uh, then I would say that we'd be in pretty good shape. So, so Val, just just to clarify, let's just say basketball season is wiped out, and your Big East and your March Madness is wiped out. Can the Big East survive with this insurance and the reserves that you have built up? Can we survive? Absolutely. I mean, the Big East. Uh, you know, uh, I think I would call it an austerity year. <laughs> and that word would probably be used by many of my colleagues as well. It would be rough year uh, for sure. But, you know, I would assume it would be a temporary setback. I mean, you know, as I read tea leaves, if we can get a vaccine, then I would see the 21-22 academic year and sport year as being restored. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a believer in the power of sports. I I think when it comes back in our country, it's going to come back big. I think there's a tremendous appetite for, particularly on television, if we can't deliver the in-person experience. So I, you know, my view is that this time next year, hopefully, we're in a, in a much better position. But I, I think all of us accept that this year uh, 
could be a rocky road for a variety of reasons. But as it relates to the Big East, I know our schools remain very, very committed to their athletic programs. And once we kind of get the coast clear again on the, um, again, the, the, the safety, the, the assurance of safety that I think would be made, uh, made possible by a vaccine, I think we'll be in fine shape. It's just kind of what we would have to go through between now and then. As a Georgetown alum and Georgetown fan, I love the fact that UConn is coming back. Some of my fondest memories, some of my most painful memories as a student and as a fan have been Georgetown-UConn games. How important is it for the league and, candidly, the business of the league to have UConn back in the mix? Well, Jason, we're really excited about the reentry um, of the Huskies back into into our league. As you, as you know, probably know, they were a charter member when the league was formed yep. in, seven, in 1979. It's been, I think it was 30 five years, something close to that, in the Big East before the uh, events of 2012 and 2013 when we parted ways. Um, we think they'll bring, um, uh, you know, a tremendous amount ranging from good geography, um, great rivalries that are already in place, like the one with Georgetown, St. John's, Villanova, and others. Certainly, you know, great rivalry looming, relooming with Providence just down the road. They're less than 60 miles apart. And then the prospect of some exciting new rivalries with uh, our Midwest schools. Um, I'll just note, uh, UConn played Xavier in a men's basketball MTE in uh, South Carolina this year, went into double overtime. It was just, it was a war. And so there was, you know, maybe a taste of what's to come there. So uh, we think it'll be uh, good for everyone. Obviously, we have great respect for uh, Coach Hurley and Coach Oriama, women's basketball you, you know, you're dealing with the greatest program of all time, right. caliber um, program. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they've got great sports um, in, in some other areas as well, including field hockey and other sports. So um, they, they'll add a lot. And having their fans back at Madison Square Garden uh, for their, uh, for you know, for a return to the Big East tournament, we think will also be very, very exciting. So uh, I think great near-term uh, possibilities, but also to your point, we think it'll help as well fortify our position, particularly when we go back out to the media rights market in a few years' time. We think they will only strengthen our hand. A tip of the cap to you because the Big East Conference, you guys have partnered with an organization called RISE. It aims to equip sports leaders to create positive change on matters of racism, social justice, and equality. Can you expand more on that about RISE and this partnership? Sure. RISE is, uh, as some of your listeners may know, they're a national organization that has long been in the business of uh, providing sports organizations with programming um, designed to help their coaches and their athletes and their staffs um, fight the fight against racial discrimination um, and to improve race relations. So they're a known um, they're a known organization to us. One of our ADs, Lee Reed, um, Jason, the athletics director at Georgetown, is on their board. Right. Uh, former commission, NFL commissioner Paul Tagliabue is their current board chair. And so we have great respect for RISE. We've been talking with them for a few months, and we um, just announced a league-wide partnership that will allow our athletes and coaches and staff to benefit from their programs. Um, and importantly, um, they have a nonpartisan civic engagement initiative. Many, many people in our league, in response to um, George Floyd's murder and, and related events, have expressed an interest in voter registration, education, um, election day initiatives, and so forth. And RISE does that too. 
So we have a kind of a, you know, able to get it two birds with a stone, one stone with our partnership. So we're excited by what they'll bring to us. And we think our student athletes in particular will benefit from these offerings they have and walk away feeling like they can make a difference, which is uh, kind of what matters most. And Val, it, uh, to me, it appears you have a little bit of an edge here because almost every one of your schools is in an urban setting, uh, in, in cities where voices need to be heard. And I think that uh, the timing and it's, it's just the, the, the perfect storm here for, for rise and uh, a time to, to rise up and to be heard and to be seen. Yeah, that's, that's very much how we, um, how we look at it. So um, they, you know, we're already in discussions with them about how to roll this out. I'll add, this was this relationship was also inspired by um, an internal working group we have. We have a diversity, equity, and inclusion working group within the Big East that's been up and running for uh, about 18 months. Um, and so they very much advocated this sort of an arrangement with an outside partner just to help them with what they're already doing on campuses. A number of our schools have these sorts of programs, but they um, thought they could always use more help. Some schools um, need to get going. Um, in ways where other schools are a bit further ahead. So I think this will help us all the way around, certainly a very topical area. And again, we think it can uh, pay some great dividends to, uh, to our stakeholders. And Val, to that end, I mean, we've talked a lot on this show, and I'm sure it is not lost on you and, and your colleagues across the Big East, especially when it comes to basketball, that some of the most vivid examples of player empowerment have come from the professional basketball leagues, both both the NBA and the WNBA. How does that translate through to men's and women's basketball at the Big East? How does it influence the way the league and the coaches and, and maybe even some of the individual schools and school presidents both encourage and, and sort of channel the right sort of player empowerment, especially in basketball? Well, as it relates to the NBA, they've certainly been a leader for many, many years. Um, on matters relating to the role of sport in society. Um, I worked for 16 years for the NBA. David Stern was my mentor. Right. And so I was a witness firsthand to uh, his belief in what sports leagues not only could do but needed to do um, as socially responsible corporate citizens. So that influence has very much you know, resonated with me. Um, Adam Silver has certainly carried this forth. In, uh, you know, in his role as David's successor. And so, yes, I think it's safe to say we look to the NBA and all, all pro leagues, really, for their leadership on, on this sort of topic. So what's happening now with the restart of pro leagues, certainly not lost on us. As it relates to basketball, um, you know, we have um, 80% of the, of the student-athletes in men's basketball in the Big East are black student-athletes. Um, we have five out of our 11 head coaches are, are black coaches. We have a very robust and um, uh, a very impressive group of assistant coaches which have come together to form their own coalition, Coaches for Action, to try to inspire change. So um, we, we think, we expect that the Big East will take a leadership position on matters relating to, um, to race and, and basketball. Um, you know, our stakeholders um, internally are very eager to do their part. We know we're a, you know, we're a college conference. We don't have the resources of a pro league or a major corporation, but we do think we have a responsibility to do our part. So I think you can expect to see in the coming months more from us um, as it relates to, um, you know, it, you know the, the effort to combat bigotry 
and, uh, you know, and empower our athletes to do their parts as well as leaders on their campuses to really stand up in this fight. So they're, they're important to us. And, again, I think you're going to see more coming from us in the weeks to come. Out of the three, you can count on me to ask the goofiest question. So I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain and ask this. So my question to you is when it comes to big esports, what is your favorite sport? I know you love basketball. But in terms of soccer and, and all the other sports, what is your favorite of all time? Well, basketball, you know, yeah, I'd be, I'm a little biased because I've been in <laughs> basketball for my whole career, and that's one of the best parts of my job um, is being able to be involved in both men's and women's basketball. Um, I, you know, I will say I was at the Georgetown National Championship soccer game back in December. They were actually um, – crazily enough, playing my alma mater. I went to the University of Virginia. So there I was watching a Georgetown University of Virginia men's soccer national championship game. Um, so that was, uh, that was interesting um, and, and, and fun to see um, my, my current school, Georgetown, uh, end up on top. So that was terrific. Um, I played field hockey in high school, and so that's of great interest to me. It's a change game. Um, since my playing days many years ago, but I, I love going to field hockey games um, and, and seeing that. And I'll, I'll land another one. Um, I swam as a competitive swimmer um, for many years before I went to high school and had to drop it. But um, every year I, I make the biggie swimming and diving meet. This past year it was on Long Island in the uh, Nassau Aquatic Center, and it just always makes me want to jump in the pool whenever I go to a <laughs> swim meet. So there's a few for you, Michael. I probably can go on and on but i'll top of mind I'll, I'll offer up those i should add before we move on you are in the women's basketball hall of fame and uh, that has yes. always been a big feat yeah thank you and i'm on their board um mm-hmm. you know this is a separate hall of fame from naismith where i'm a lifetime trustee but um the women's basketball hall of fame really um is a special place that is working hard to make sure that women's basketball um, is honored, past, present, and future. Um, they're in Knoxville. If anybody gets a chance to get down there, they've got a, a nice property not far from the UT campus. And if you're a women's basketball buff, some amazing memorabilia about the women's game going back to the early days when it was AAU that was carrying it back in the 30s and the 40s. So um, exciting trip for anybody in the Smoking Mountains who makes, happens to make it to the Smoky Mountains. I'll tell you how far back I go, Val. When I was in high school, girls basketball, only three girls in the front court, three in the back court, and you can only dribble the ball three times before you had to pass. You've come a long way, baby, I can tell you. I, I have three daughters. I coached the, them in middle school. And uh, I, of all the, all the sports, I, I think women's basketball has, has made the, the most gigantic leap of all. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I played at Virginia. In the early days of Title IX, um, was on the front lines, of course, with the start of the WNBA, now almost 25 years ago. Um, and so to see how far it's come and how big of a sport it is at the collegiate level, we're very proud of our women's basketball programs in the Big East. DePaul has been our reigning champion the last few years. But again, with UConn coming in, I expect our level of play will really elevate. And of course, you know, follow closely what happens with the WNBA and the great athletes um, there and everything they're doing as role models in women's team sports. So uh, I'm with you. It's a sport that has been leading and I think will continue to lead uh, well into the future. 
And Val, on that note, as we wrap up, I do wonder, you know, if we go back a a year or so ago, um, and a year ago feels like 20 years ago at this point, given everything that's happened in in 2020, but there were were some huge debates, uh, overdue debates, led by the U.S. women's national team on the soccer side about equal pay and a number of issues. How much progress has been made, do you think, when it comes to equality, especially when it comes to compensation, how much further do we have to go and what happens next? Well, on the pro level, um, it's, a, it's a tricky conversation because in pro sports, unlike college sports, where you have, as I mentioned earlier, the Title IX sure. safety net, in pro sports, salaries are revenue-driven. Um, I was part of the NBA in the early years when salaries escalated because TV revenues went up dramatically, just in leaps and bounds. Um, ticket sales revenue went up in leaps and bounds. Sponsors got more energized and started paying more for the right to associate with the league. And that, in turn, fueled player salaries. I think for women's um, pro sports, that part of the equation can't be lost. And so, for me, it kind of comes down for the future of women's pro sports in the salary area, for me, it comes down to fan support. If fans are coming out in big numbers, um, if they're buying tickets at high prices, um, if sponsors are um, paying high dollars for advertising revenue because the ratings are going up for the games on television because fans are interested in consuming it in that way, then if history is any guide, revenues will go up, and those monies in turn will flow, at least in part, to the players. Um, th- that's where the disparity has been. WNBA doesn't bring in the revenues that the NBA brings in. Um, I can't speak to the revenue um, the revenue um, similarities or differences in soccer, but I, right. I certainly lived it in the basketball side. So I think that's what has to happen, and that's all. You know, could be a something could ignite that, like uh, Larry and Magic and Michael did in the NBA when I was a young executive there. Um, could happen in the WNBA sooner rather than later. I hope it does. But I think that's really the part that that business people have to kind of recognize is that correlation between salaries and revenues. And if the fans are coming out in big numbers and dipping into their wallets as an expression of their support, then I think that's that's a good sign. Um, and for the players, good things happen if that happens. Right. Well, Val Ackerman, thank you so much. We know it's an incredibly busy time. A lot of big decisions still ahead. Uh, fingers crossed both for fall sports and selfishly uh, for college basketball as well because we know uh, both from the business side and the fan side – That is a big deal. We really appreciate the time. Thank you. Great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Stay well. So, guys, it's interesting, you know, to wrap up that conversation with Val Ackerman, and I think especially to pair it with the conversation we had earlier in the week with Joe D'Antonio of the Colonial. Man, these commissioner jobs, they're always tough. You're always balancing a lot of stakeholders. But in these days, the moving targets of – student safety, all the different constituencies, the stakeholders at the public-private level. I mean, Michael Barr, it's insane. Oh, my goodness. The stuff you have to balance, I don't see how they keep all the plates spinning at the same time. It's something else. And and something else that I was really impressed with, uh, the Big East partnering with Rise and all of their efforts about uh, equality, and racial injustice and and it's good to see that in these times now that uh, we're starting to see more of an awareness of that in sports and there is some progress in that mike lynch 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. You stole my thunder, as you always do, because uh, you bet bet number two in the lineup, and I bet number three. So you always see much better pitchers than I see. Um, (laughs) um, I agree with you 100% on that. And also what what kind of floored me and surprised me a little bit was uh, that Val told us she had an insurance policy for the Big East tournament, uh, which wasn't hard, was was not easy to come by, and that it's going to continue for the next two years. I mean, who thinks of an insurance policy for a pandemic? Uh, nobody. So, right. uh, you know, she's sharp. I mean, anyone that's read her resume, there's, there isn't anything that she hasn't put her finger in for at least uh, a year or two. She is just one of the most impressive resumes I've ever read. Yeah, it's a, and it's a big job in, in many ways and very high profile. I mean, my last takeaway was I think it's hard to, and, and again, I say this in part as a fan, but, but also as someone who I would like to think knows a little bit about the economics of college basketball. UConn coming back to the Big East really is a big deal. I think for for fans and alum of those Big East schools, when UConn left, I mean, it was really deflating in, in many ways, and I think it really does ensure the future of the league in, in a pretty meaningful way. Uh, and as she said, and I was glad she pointed this out, that will help a lot when they go back to negotiate media rights because you need those big schools, you need those like decades-old rivalries to really get people fired up. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right, everybody, huddle around the radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I know everybody's been waiting for this. <laughs> Time now for the number of the week. Please play along at home. Guys, this, the rules of this is going to be a little different. It's All going right. to be the person who is the closest to is the winner. So with okay. that said, right. just like in Card Sharks, here's the question. Colorado released its uh, State Department of Revenue concerning sports betting in the state. Uh, and let's say it's been a small ball affair. But it, with table tennis, how much do you think it generated in wagers in May, the first month of legal sports betting in the state. Oh boy! All right, Lynchy, I'm deferring to you on this. I, I've no, I've no idea. Okay, I'm going to say table tennis one month uh, wagering just in the state of Colorado. Correct. This is just in the state of Colorado. Okay, I'm going to go with uh, John Havlicek, number seventeen, seventeen million. Seventeen million. I should do it. Do I, do I want to do this uh, card sharks way? Let's see. Do you think it's higher or lower, Jason? Uh, I think it's higher. And you would say <laughs> you got to give a number. Oh, in I got to give a number. Way. Oh, yeah. I, um, I would say. So I'm. Gonna, I'll say twenty-five. Twenty-five. Now, first of all, I guess the closest is going to be uh, for Lynchy. It is six point six million in wagers, but you were the closest. In ding, ding, the ding, ding, total ding, 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 of ding. millions of wagers, <laughs> $25.6 million in the entire month of May. So, But the, the key here is that when you, when you get the first time to bet, 
Yeah. Table tennis, all of a sudden, is like, you know what? <laughs> let me do my homework on this. <laughs> let me see what I can do here. It's like, it's not marble racing, man. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're not doing homework on that. But when it's your first month out of the blocks, yeah, you're going you're gonna to bet pong. on anything. <laughs> Ping pong, right? That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, I mean, as we talked with Paul Rabel about uh, a couple weeks ago, I mean, they're gonna, the people are going to be betting on lacrosse this weekend, uh, this upcoming weekend, I believe, when they kick oh, off. I'm so. going to be on it. Who knew? Can bet on anything, but that's not news to Michael Barr. <laughs> and you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. I'm Mike Lynch. You can find me at LynchyWCBB. By the way, a tip, guys, the Blue Marble, they're on PEDs. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter <laughs> at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. <laughs> 